We'll hear argument next in case 08660, United States ex rel Eisenstein versus the City of New York. Mr. Shore. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, for two main reasons, the Second Circuit's judgment should be reversed. First, uh, under Appellate Rule 4A1B, uh, the government is a party in key TAM actions because it is named, served, and bound, and a real party in interest, all without ever intervening or actively participating. And second, any participation-based test of party status will create burdensome fact-specific jurisdictional inquiries at the start of every appeal and declined key TAM Why at the start? Why isn't the time the end? I mean, we can — the notice of appeal is to be filed after there's a judgment. Why isn't the proper time to determine number of days to appeal? when the judgment is entered, and at that point, one can see that the government has done nothing, absolutely nothing, in the case. At the inception, I agree with you, we don't know what, if anything, the government is going to do, but by the time judgment is entered, we surely know. Oh, it'll, it'll be uh, quite difficult and burdensome even a, a, upon entry of judgment for the, a relator or a defendant to determine um, whether the government's uh, participation was sufficiently active to make the government a party. Um, but we hear the government did nothing, not one thing. Um, well, under the, uh, uh, under the um, active participation test, um, uh, that may be. But the question is, is, is will this Court be adopting um, the active participation test? Um, the test is — I don't know what you mean by active participation as opposed to just plain participation. If the rule is you, at the time judgment is entered, to determine how much time you have to file your notice of appeal, the question is, has the government done anything? And if the government has done nothing at all, then you have 30 days. Um. In, uh, well, to address Your Honor's uh, first point, um, the Second Circuit's test was participation. The test proposed by respondents and the government is active participation, which narrows, narrows it somewhat. Um, uh, we point out in our opening brief that um, it's hard to conclude that the government did nothing here. Um, it did uh, request um, uh, uh, to receive um, uh, orders uh, and um, it, yeah, so it, that's the question, whether that's enough or whether uh, the government's power to uh, prevent discovery, which it can do, is, is that alone enough? Well, our, our position is that the test is the wrong test. Our position is that yeah, — I understand that. But, but I'm saying there are various steps the, government's can, the government can take, and I, 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 I think you, you have a point that uh, even though this case may be an easy one, we're going to have to decide in future cases how much, how much activity by the government is enough activity to make the government a party. And I think it will be a very difficult termination um, for the relator or the defendant for uh, several reasons. First of all, um, the government um, expressly uh, declines to limit or define the circumstances uh, constituting active participation. So there will be a whole series of, of legal determinations and possibly trips to this Court to determine um, the content of the standard. Um, uh, secondly, there will be um, 
uh, uh, enormously difficult um, fact-gathering um, uh, uh, efforts um, for the uh, that, that the relator and the defendant will have to um, undergo um, at the end of uh, a case after judgment has been entered. Um, sometimes a docket sheet in a fully litigated KETAM action, declined or not, uh, can be 100 or 200 pages, and, and the case will have gone on for five or six years. Um, the standard would require uh, the, the active participation standard would require the relator or the defendant to comb through the docket sheet to um, uh, find every instance of, of government participation to see whether, if the docket sheet will reveal it, um, uh, the participation was sufficiently well, active. He wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have to do anything like that at all. He would just file before 30 days just to be on the safe side. It's not uh, like he's going to say, I'm going to analyze this for you know, a 100-page document to see whether I get an extra 30 days to do something as simple as filing a notice of appeal. I, I, respectfully, I think that might read out of the rules the 60-day period. Um, but also, I think it's a, a, a reflex among uh, a trained counsel um, always to see, first, as soon as judgment is entered, how much time do I have to file the notice of appeal? So the inquiry will have to be um, undertaken um, unless the court no, no, and if and if the inquiry says it's hard to tell, there's a 30-day limit and there's a 60-day limit, I don't know of any responsible counsel who wouldn't file uh, within 30 days. Um, if that's the position, then that will read out of the rules, the 60-day period. The rules do contain a 60-day period. Why would that — why would it — I mean, it would still apply to the government or any case in which the government's a party, where it's not an issue whether is the government a party or not. Um, if it becomes too difficult to determine whether the government is a party, then it, then it will be very hard to imagine the relator or the um, defendant who will um, uh, uh, feel uh, able to invoke the 60-day provision, um, and that would effectively make it a dead letter. Oh, no, no, I agree with you that it, it — I'm just saying, why in the world would a relator want to invoke the 60-day provision if there's at all, a, at all a question about whether it's 30 days or 60 days? Um, it, it, it's it's uh, it's the case that um, people read the rules and see there's a, there are 30 days if the government's not a party and 60 days if the government is a party. It's a, it's a function of the rules themselves. Um, the rules say there's a 60-day period. It's is there any advantage? I mean, a notice of appeal is the easiest document, so it's not a question that there's any labor involved in doing this. But is there any advantage? to filing, to taking the 60 days instead of the 30 days. Why would counsel want to take advantage of the extra 30 days? It isn't a question of a labor having to write a, like having to write a brief. Well, what advantage would there be for taking the additional 30 days? If, if we're talking about relators' counsel, um, sometimes in a decline key TAM action, um, the relator's counsel um, may uh, wait to determine — well, may want to know whether the government will be filing any sort of um, uh, amicus brief on appeal before determining whether it will go ahead with the appeal. Um, and rather than, than uh, filing what's known as a protective notice of appeal, which isn't, a, which isn't an optimal procedure um, — how, how would you know at the time of filing the notice of appeal whether the government — is thereafter going to file uh, an amicus brief? 
Relators Council is frequently in touch with Government Council, and uh, an important factor in whether Relators Council will um, pursue an appeal and spend the money on the appeal is whether they'll have support in any respect from uh, the Government. So sometimes it is the case that Relators Council will very much want to know if Government — if the Government will be making any sort of supportive filing on the appeal, and that may take longer to determine than the 30 days. Sometimes it's — Yeah, but it — you don't have to know that before you file the one-page notice of appeal. I mean, if you need more time, you can get more time, but, but it's, you, you don't have to know all of that. It's not going to cost you a lot of money to file the notice of appeal. Uh, that's, that's true. And if it turns out the government is not going to come in, you can always dismiss the appeal. Um, th- that is true. Um, I, I think it's a sub-op- suboptimal procedure to file something, to file a, a notice with the court if, if you're not certain that it's you're going to be pursuing your appeal. Um, I, I think it's better to wait and, and um, uh, not file until one is certain um, that one will be pursuing the appeal. Well, anyway, a rule's a rule, and, and uh, discussing all of these uh, consequences uh, is beside the point. If, indeed, the government's a party, uh, it's 60 days, right? And you say the government's a party. Correct. And is, is it your position that a government is a party to this case for all purposes, for uh, all purposes of all the rules, or is it just some of them? No, uh, we, we are not arguing that the government is a, is a party only for some purposes and not others. Our arguments are consistent with the view that the government is a party for the case. As opposed to the government's view, which does sort of pick and choose between. Correct, and respondents as well. Okay. Um, uh, if the Court, however, wants to, re- wants to rule narrowly and just decide the Rule 4A1B issue, whether the government is a party under Rule 4A1B, our arguments are certainly consistent with that as well. Um, the uh, government um, is a — well, l- let me address um, one issue that may be in the Court's um, mind. The Court may be asking, well, um, uh, a Petitioner, you know, we have the government telling us that it doesn't need the 60 days when uh, uh, it doesn't intervene or actively participate. Um, doesn't that end the matter? Uh, well, the government is, is not saying it doesn't need the 60 days. It's saying you don't qualify for the 60 days. You are not the government. I don't think the government is arguing that its own time can be shortened. Um, the, well, the, the rule is that if the government gets 60 days, everybody gets 60 days, even private parties like the relator. Um, but um, I believe the government's position is that if the rationale for giving 60 days doesn't apply, then everyone else shouldn't get the benefit of the 60 days either. I believe that's the government's position. Um, uh, we would argue um, that um, two factors detract from the government's argument in that respect. Um, uh, first of all, it's unrealistic to think that the government will never need um, the 60-day period if it doesn't intervene or actively participate. Um, the problem arises if the relator does not appeal. Um, if the relator uh, litigates and tries a case um, uh, with sufficient skill that the government doesn't need to take over, um, and the district court nonetheless enters judgment for the defendant, um, the problem arises if the relator uh, doesn't appeal or doesn't appeal the particular issue or order that the government would like before the Court of Appeals. Um, in that case, an amicus filing won't protect the government's interests, um, and the government will have to appeal. Um, and once it's conceded that the government has to appeal, um, then it has to be conceded that the government will need 60 days. Um, uh, that is, that the rationale for the 60-day period is, is fully applicable. Um, 
Uh, it's also uh, true sometimes. Uh, it's not, I should say it's not at all fanciful that the relator might not appeal. Um, the relator might have spent um, a lot of money, uh, time and money, pursuing the trial and having lost, and they may call it quits for, for purposes of the appeal. Or the um, defendant might say to the relator, um, look, if you don't pursue your appeal, um, we won't file a bill of costs against you. Um, there could be all kinds of reasons why the relator might not appeal. If the relator doesn't appeal, um, there will be no appeal in which the government can make an amicus filing. So the government there, will have there to may be, There may be a lot of reasons the relator will not pursue an appeal. I don't think there's any reason that the relator would not file a notice of appeal within 30 days. Or if he doesn't like 30 days, you ask for an extension of time for another 30 days. Then the whole issue is moot. It, it, it may be, but um, I, I, I believe that um, if uh, Rule 4A1B um, creates a 60-day period, um, then uh, uh, litigants have an entitlement to, to um, invoke it. Well, your, your argument goes, is replying to the government and the uh, respondent's argument that there is no sense in giving 60 days to the government. And uh, what you're saying is, yes, sometimes there is. Correct. Even when the government has not actively participated. So it really negates, uh, you know, your... You're, you're doing something that has no point. It, it could have a point to, to give the government 60 days, even in a case where it has not actively participated. It may need that long to consult with other agencies as to whether uh, to accept the defeat in this case uh, or, or uh, on its own to uh, conduct an appeal if the relator doesn't want to. That's, that's correct. And, and, um, Can the government appeal without having intervened in the district court? Um, I, since the government is bound by the judgment, I believe that the government does have that right. I don't have authority in the False Claims Act context for that position, but I think it follows from the conclusion, which is undisputed here, that the government is bound by the judgment in a declined KETAM action, even where the government doesn't actively. I'm sure the government will agree with that. I'm sure that is one of the contexts in which they agree that the government is a party. Yes, I, I, I think that's right, although they can speak for themselves. Um, uh, now, the, um, it's important also to, to note that um, when the government declines to um, proceed with a KETAM action, it might be declining to um, uh, uh, conduct the action or take discovery or use its resources, but it's not declining to get a judgment. The judgment gets a binding judgment even when it declines. Um, and it's, um, there's no dispute that the, that, the, that the claim is the government's claim and that the judgment finally disposes of it. Um, if, uh, if in a declined action the relator litigates and gets a $10 million award, the government takes the money. Um, and so the government is bound by the judgment. Uh, the judgment finally disposes of, of the government's claim. But there, there, there are some provisions uh, that, that, that seem to indicate the government isn't a party. For example, uh, it specifically provides that even when the government hasn't intervened, the government uh, may request copies of the pleadings. doesn't have to make a request for them. Um, the government has to make Request. Well, why would it have to do that if it's a party? Um, it, it, the, the so, so you're, I mean, you're saying they are not a party for that, for that rule at least, that requires the pleadings to be served upon the other, the other party. No, uh, Congress can restrict the operation of 
uh, particular Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. The argument is that I think Your Honor is adverting to is the Rule 5 um, argument that my — that respondents and uh, the government m make. Rule 5 doesn't define who a party is. It attaches certain consequences to um, — to uh, being a party, but doesn't, it doesn't define who a party is. It says you get to be served — if you are a party, you get to be served with certain pleadings, and Congress right. simply restricted that, that right in the False Claims Act. Um, but that doesn't make it a party. Um, what makes it a party is whether it's uh, named and — I'm not following you. I'm, I'm saying if, if, if the government is a party, Rule 5 would apply, and the government would automatically get copies of the pleading, whether or not it requested them. So — the provision in the False Claims Act that the government will only get copies if it requests them seems to indicate that the government is not a party. Um, the fact that uh, ordinarily a party might get served with certain uh, pleadings doesn't mean that if Congress restricts that right, it's not a party. It means it's a party that Congress has for whom Congress has restricted the right. And that you think that, that everyone, I mean, you are relying on the government the, the government is in the caption, and it's a real party in interest. Is every real party in interest a party uh, for, the, for this purpose? No, uh, we are not arguing that. Uh, to be um, a, a party, a real party in interest must be named um, in the uh, — e the action must be brought in the name of the real party in interest, and we've cited abundant authority for the proposition that that means that the pleadings must identify that person by name. If the, if the action is to be brought in the name of Smith, then part, the pleadings must identify Smith as the plaintiff. So the naming requirement must be complied with. It's not sufficient, in our view, just to be a real party. Can I come back to the Rule 5 point just for a minute? You, you, you say that the effect of the False Claims Act is simply to restrict what would normally be the right of the government to get copies of all the pleadings. But that's really not how it reads. It doesn't say that the government shall receive copies of, of, of the pleadings only if it requests them. Rather, it says the government shall receive copies of the pleadings if it requests them, as though without that provision it wouldn't have a right to receive copies. Um, Isn't that the way it reads? It, it does read that way. I think the addition of only is, is logician's um, language, Your Honor. I'm not sure that um, the drafters well, can, what we are down here, can be. <laughs> it, it, it may be, but um, not, not every drafting uh, of a statute rises to that level of, of, uh, of Precision. quality. Um, uh, the attachment of the condition, if it requests, I think goes a long way towards suggesting that if it doesn't so request, um, then it, it won't, which means that Congress has restricted um, the operation of, of Rule 5. And, and there are a number of instances where Congress um, will restrict the operation of Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, even when someone is concededly a party to the case. I've cited a number of instances in that, uh, of that in uh, our reply brief. Um, there are a number of uh, statutory actions, especially where the government is a party, um, where even though it's concededly a party and everyone's a party, um, the, uh, the, the normal party discovery obligations don't apply. We've cited um, FOIA and APA and tax summons and, and habeas is a, is a slightly different example. But there are, there are many examples where Congress will um, step in and restrict the um, obligations that the federal rules would otherwise apply to people who are parties without depriving them of party status. Um, I, I'd like to address the intervention provision. 
Um, we have many arguments in our briefs as to why the intervention provision doesn't determine party status. I, I think that the um, simplest uh, way from A to B is to follow through to its conclusion an example that the um, government gives. The government says that if it vetoes a settlement, then it is a party. Well, if it vetoes a settlement, that is without having intervened, if it, if it vetoes a settlement without having intervened, then the case goes forward because there's no settlement. Um, but then if the government wants to conduct the action, the only way it can conduct the action under the statute is if it then intervenes. So you have a case where the government is already a party when it intervenes. Um, and therefore, even under the government's example, the intervention provision cannot determine um, party status. Um, uh, I, I'd like to, to just go back to the um, definition of, of party that um, uh, is in our uh, briefing. Um, the uh, several provisions of the False Claims Act um, uh, show that even without ever intervening or actively participating, the government um, satisfies the classic elements of party status. It's a, a real party in interest because the statute uh, calls it the government's claim and gives the government the bulk of the recovery. The um, uh, the government is, is named as a plaintiff in the pleadings pursuant to the um, Act's naming requirements. Um, the government is served with the complaint under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 4 um, pursuant to the Act's service requirement. Um, and the government is bound by the judgment, which is not even disputed here. Those are the classic elements of party status, and the government satisfies them all in this case. There's something uh, odd about uh, plaintiffs come to the court seeking something. Defendants are, are stuck. They're being sued. And here, the United States is an involuntary plaintiff. It didn't commence this lawsuit. And I think there must be many cases where the government will say, we, we don't want anything to do with this. Um, I, I, I uh don't think it's accurate to say that the government is an involuntary plaintiff because Congress has um, said the United States will be a plaintiff under these circumstances. And, and in that respect, Congress has spoken for the United States. Um, uh, it is an oddity of the False Claims Act that the plaintiff is served with the complaint, but that's there on the face of the statute. Um, and uh, once it's served, um, having been uh, named and having been already a real party in interest by operation of law, um, then uh, it has, it, it's already a party at that point. Um, and if it's a party at that point, then it's a party for purposes of Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 4A1B, and, and maybe for other purposes as well. Um, I, I'd like to um, — Maybe for other purposes? I thought you told me before that it was it, it, for it other is. purposes it is. as well. It okay. Is. Just let's, let's stay on track. Yes. Um, uh, I'd like to um, — but it's not really a party for all purposes in your submission. It's not a party for discovery purposes, is it? In, in our arguments, it is a party even though it is not subject to discovery. Um, there are two ways one can characterize the government. One can either say it's not a party for purposes of discovery, or as we say, citing uh, authority in our reply, it is a party, but it is, for other statutory reasons, not subject to discovery. The declination provision is key here. It, it, by the declination provision, Congress said the government can decline to engage in discovery. 
Right? It declines to conduct the action. One aspect of conducting the action is engaging in discovery. The government can decline to engage. That means not only um, not uh, serving discovery requests, but not responding to discovery requests. Um, and that's part and parcel of the declination provision. That's the way Congress structured it. So what, I — Where is that? What provision is that? I didn't focus on that. The, the declination provision, Your Honor? Yeah, yes. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to eat up your time with it. No, no, that's fine. I mean, where is it in the stuff that I have? You know? Oh. <laughs> um. Yeah, well, it's on, certainly on page two of our opening brief. Um, it says, if the government elects not to proceed with the action, uh, the person who initiated the action shall have the right to conduct the action. Um, and there are other provisions um, that we cite in footnote 27. Yeah, but that doesn't say anything about discovery in particular. I thought you were talking about some declination provision that, uh, that said the government uh — um, uh, it's not subject to discovery. Well, footnote 27 of our brief also cites other um, uh, provisions of the Act that, that define what it means to conduct the action, um, and discovery is one of them. And the declination provision says that if the government declines — if the government, if the government intervenes and it conducts the action, if it declines, then it doesn't conduct the action. And the rest of the Act defines what conducting the action is, and that includes discovery. So our, our conclusion from that is that when the government declines to conduct the action, it's going to decline to engage in discovery. That's, that, that's the argument. And, 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 and the fact that it cannot conduct discovery also involves the fact that it's immune from discovery. Um, How do you get that? And it is. Is it not? Uh, yes, that's our, that's our position, and I think that's the government's position as well. Oh, I'm sure it's the government's um, position. It, it would be, it but, would be but odd. How can that, how can that be? Well, it's it, a party. Uh, it, um, it's a party who is, because of the declination provision, not subject to um, discovery. Oh, the declination provision doesn't say that. The declination provision just says that it is not actively uh, conducting the case. But how do you get its exemption from discovery? Um, because um, w the declination provision um, says that if the government um, declines, then it will not conduct the action. The relator will conduct the action. Okay. And conducting the action is, is defined elsewhere in the statute as including um, conducting, uh, mm -hmm. engaging in discovery. Um, and it would be hard to imagine Congress um, yeah, uh, 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 contemplating such asymmetry in, in discovery obligations that well, I, I agree with that, but, but it, it, it's for me a problem with your assertion that for all purposes the government is a party. It seems to me it is not a party for purposes of discovery, and there's no provision in, in, the, in the False Claims Act that exempts it from discovery. Uh, there, specifically. It's, it's an inference to be drawn from the statute, Your Honor. Um, uh, in, in sum, uh, we'd ask the Court to reverse the judgment of the uh, Second Circuit, and I'd like to reserve the balance of my time for a moment. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Reifen. Mr. Chief Justice and members of the Court, 
When the government declines to intervene in a quitam action, it should not be deemed a party for the purposes of the rules of procedure of Rule 4. The government's role is described in terms of intervention. As of right in the first 60 days, following the filing of complaint, and for good cause thereafter, if the government decides to come in after initial declination. This, this is certainly a trap for the unwary, right? I mean, every lawyer loves to win on a technicality. I think this is a trap for the unwary. It is clear. It says if the United States is a party, it's, thir- it's 60. If it's not, it's 30. And you've got a situation where the United States, the action is brought in the name of the United States. It's in the name of the United States. But, the, you know, looking at the statute where the government has declined, it's not a party. Any conservative counsel, if there are two periods of time, 30 days or 60 days, the intelligent thing to do is to go ahead. I know, but this is such a, an, uh, such a trap for the unwary that you never even raised this point. It was raised sua sponte by the Court of Appeals. And rejected. And I think after — it's hard to see how — Well, my point is, if it didn't occur to you, how can you claim that it should definitely have occurred to your a friend on the other side? I don't know that it didn't occur to us. I think we were trying to reject it. And certainly after this Court decides the issue, it would no longer be a trap for the unwary. The decision will be out there, either it's 30 days or 60 days. May I ask this question about — are there a number of circuits that follow the 60-day rule? Yes. And in those cases, suppose we decide your way in this case, what happens to the, all the appeals that have been taken relying on the 60-day rule? Because I understand the failure to file a notice of appeal is jurisdictional. I think those appeals will be terminated. And all of those will be terminated? Yes. And what about judgments that have been entered based on appeals that were? I don't know. I guess those judgments would have to be vacated if the judgments swore the appeal so we're really, timely. In several circuits, are really rather important decisions are being called for. Yes, yes. Why would the judgment have to be vacated? I mean, even a jurisdictional issue becomes subject to preclusion once you've drawn the appeal route. That may be true, Your Honor. So, I mean, even yes. the holiest yes, jurisdictional exactly base can be um, precluded and not raised on collateral right. attack. You may be correct on that, Your Honor. Again, as I said, the, uh, what the Congress has done, it's very important in this case to look at the legislative history. Congress has given the government 60 days to weigh the risks and benefits of getting involved in the case. If it chooses to do so, it has full responsibility for the conduct of the litigation. If it declines to do that, the statute provides that the relator shall have full responsibility for the conduct of the litigation and requires the government, if it subsequently wants to get involved, to make a motion for intervention, during which time it has to show good cause. And it's our position that intervention should be given its ordinary and common meaning, which is the method by which a person who is not a party becomes a party. Except that the government here has considerable powers, uh, even without intervening. And uh, they include uh, uh, its ability to uh, uh, move to stay discovery, which normally a party would only be able to do. It can object uh, to any voluntary dismissal or settlement, which normally would be a party's right. There are certain — And some courts — have allowed the government to move to dismiss. There is certainly a limited role here, but it is a very limited role. 
the government can uh, do that. This Court has recognized that you can be a party for this limited purpose. For example, if the government moved to dismiss and they have to, there has to be a hearing following that and that motion were denied, the government could not then participate on the merits of the case. It would have to move to intervene for good cause if the 60 days had passed. So unlike, unlike your, your adversary here, you, your adversary says the government is a party for all purposes. You are not saying the government is not a party for all purposes. You're saying it's not a party for some purposes. What we're saying is certainly it is not a party in this case where it has played absolutely no role. You're, you are saying that. There may You're be. You're also saying, as for the rest, uh, sometimes there, it is, sometimes it isn't. There may, there may be circumstances. If the Court were to hold that intervention is required, even in those limited circumstances, uh, that would be okay with us. We're not okay. taking — I'm sorry, why don't you finish? We're not taking a formal position on that. I, I think — Counsel, it, how does it work? I mean, presumably, I guess, the government can decide that it wants to appeal a case in which it has not participated below, right? It would have to move to intervene. It has to move to intervene. So let's say there's a judgment. The government looks at it and saying, well, we didn't know we'd get a decision like this. We've got to appeal this. The uh, uh, relator — uh, doesn't want to appeal it. Um, 30 days goes by. The government moves to intervene because it has 60 days. I think we would take the position there's no longer a case, Your Honor. It has 30 days. The relator has not appealed. The government was not a party during that 30-day period. 31, 32, 33 days, the case is over. I guess there's a possibility for the government to move to extend its time but in, under the rules, but uh, generally there would be no opportunity for the government to intervene since the case is over. It had not been a party, it had not chosen to be a party, and the time has expired. So for all the reasons in the legislative history that you discussed about why the government gets more time, those reasons don't apply. It doesn't situation. apply if there's no longer a case. And if 30 days has gone by, there'd be no longer a case. What's, what about the case that they were talking about where so the, the, <coughs> the relators pursuing a case and the case is over and the, the, they're not going to appeal because they don't have many money left, whatever it is. But the government looks at that judgment and thinks, oh, God, there's something wrong with this one. Uh, I better appeal it. That's the government lawyer speaking. Now, they're supposed to have 60 days to figure that one out. And, and you'll take that 60 away from them because they'll have to do this whole thing in 30. Yes, well, having not intervened in the case, they had not been a part. No, because they didn't expect the judge, did a, or the judge did a surprising thing, which but judges the government, surprised. The government is given that opportunity to monitor the case. Yeah. They can come in. Uh, but ha the yeah. government having Or would this be a solution which wouldn't help you? You'd say, well, there's some factors here cut one way and there's some that cut the other way. And some circuits have said the government should have the 60 days and those cases are already proceeding. So it's best to keep it where it is, which is 60 days, and then suggest the Rules Committee look into this, since we don't actually. That's right. You know, all right. But that, the, the, the Rules the Committee rule, look into it. If it's the right. rules give 60 days to the government when it is a party, if it's not a party. Well, I know. That's repeating your argument. I'm, and I'm suggesting what would be wrong with the view that you lose because, because of the reasons I said. Yeah, you, you rely a lot, Council, on, on, you know, intervention as, as that's what makes the government I, a party. I think we will. Uh, 
Right? Uh, oh, we rely on Abdul Quds. Yeah. That was what Congress said. Congress has made it clear yeah. using intervention. The original statute, uh, or the earlier statute, uh, did not use the word intervention. But they used it in, in 19. I forget the different word it used. Appearance, what? maybe. Appearance? It's appearance. But Congress, Congress clearly used that now in 1986. I think Congress knew what it was intending, absent any legislative history, that Congress intended to uh, not give the term intervention. It's commonly understood term, and it's such a commonly understood term by which a non-party becomes a party. I think one should give it that normal uh, intention. I I really wonder whether they didn't intend the same same result. Uh, You you think they they consciously — under the prior statute, you would say the government, I, I the, the government would have been a party I don't because you would be a party and I wouldn't, appear. I wouldn't say that, Your Honor. No. But I know in 1986 that what they were attempting to do was strengthen the right of private persons to bring quitem actions. For the first time, the government was given a limited right to come in for good cause after 60 days. But if you look at the legislative history of that, I think Congress intended that the right of the government to intervene after 60 days was somewhat limited, and they had to show good cause. Counsel, I, I pressed your friend about what's the big deal. Why don't you just file <clears throat> within 30? It only seems fair to press you on what's the big deal with letting them have an the big, for the 60, big, I think which the, also solves the problem of the potential. I think, the big, the, I think the big deal is that it can open more questions than it resolves if you give the government party status for I, well, I agree with that. I agree with that. I, but well, what I, if we I, say — Your Honor, I think Chief I'm Justice — Sorry. What, what if I say — or whoever is writing the opinion says, uh, this is only for purposes of filing the appeal. We don't decide whether the government is a party and all these other characteristics, but when it comes to Rule 4A. I think the purpose of Rule 4 was to give the government time to make a decision when it's actually a party and has a right to appeal. That should, it is jurisdictional. It can, should be construed narrowly. The purpose of the rule is to expedite the process of appeals. Well, it should be construed narrowly. I don't think saying whether it's 30 or 60 days at all implicates that principle. Well, if, if the rule provides that the government should have 60 days when it is a party and it's not a party, then it seems to me it's a bit more well, Yeah, I mean, if we assume you're right, then that's construing it narrowly. But, but the whole question is that there's some confusion in the rule about who's right, and all I'm saying is it seems to me they'd be the easiest thing to avoid any trap for the unwary with no consequences on the other side to say but, 60 days. I don't think it wouldn't be consistent with the intent of Congress or the intent of the rule, which is to move appeals along, really, uh, within the 30 days. The exception is given to the government when it is a party, when it has to. Oh, this isn't going to delay appeals, for heaven's sakes. I mean, there's all sorts of scheduling rules about the timing of the briefs, and everybody gets an extension on their briefs. This is going to have no effect, whatever, on how quickly appeals move along. Uh, then I would tell Your Honor, you know, whether or not you want to give somebody a break on that. It is simply inconsistent with the rule, which requires the United States to be a party when they have, as in this case, played absolutely no role, and they are clearly not a party. Uh, again, turning to the question of the real party and interest, as I think it was discussed, real party and interest is simply one who can bring the lawsuit. Mr. Eisenstein is a real party and interest. A real party and interest is not synonymous with party status. Rule 17 describes real party and interest. 
Obviously, there's Rule 4 uh, describes a party. The other side acknowledges that. They say, however, it's different when you have real party and interest plus the party named. I and these things are styled in the United think, States. Your Honor, I don't think it's accumulation of all of these bits of of uh, real party and interests. Well, it doesn't really count. Now the party's named. No, 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 that, no, no that's, that's unfair. If you are a real party and interest and you are the named party. I, I think the naming, the naming. You're normally a party. The naming is nominal. I think the real question is to look at the intent of Congress in terms of the right of the government to participate. And I would point out, I think during the first 80 years of experience under the Quitam action, the United States was named, but had absolutely no right to play a role in the litigation. I don't know that we should elevate form over substance here, and I must come back again to what we think is the critical role, which was the intent of Congress in requiring intervention on the part of the United States government if it decides that it wants to assume the burdens of party status. But there are certain things the government can do, as you concede, without intervening. Yes, there are certain limited roles. I don't know that that makes them a party for the purposes of the Eisenstein case. If the government did decide to take over uh, the key TAM plaintiff would remain a party. Would, the, government. the government would have primary responsibility under the statute. So why shouldn't it work the other way? When the government stays out, it's a party. When the government isn't conducting the litigation, it's a party, just as the key TAM plaintiff would be a party. Because I think the standard is intervention. In the absence of intervention by the United States, it should not be a party. Well, except the United States has a lot of power. Un unlike the, the government's uh, presentation here, you would not allow any degree of activity on the part of the government to cause it to be a party, even if it exercises all of these other powers short of intervening. It must well, intervene in, in your we, no we would accept and if it has to be a bright line we would accept intervention we recognize though the standard that you can be a party for a limited purpose uh, as, as well do you want a bright line or not a bright line i would we you, would, you agree with we, the would government? Live, we would live with a bright line certainly do you agree with the government's presentation that it becomes a party when it reaches a certain uh, ineffable uh, degree of activity i don't know if it's ineffable i think the government was relying on the devlin decision where there was some indication that there could be status of, of being a party where there is limited participation for collateral purposes. But again, in Devlin, the government had argued that intervention was the preferable uh, method of getting into a case. The Court rejected that because they thought intervention essentially would be pro forma. Yeah. But in this, in this, I don't think they were relying on Devlin. Uh, they, they, well, they, they were. The point they're making here they is, is not that we're a party for some purposes and not for others. The point they're making is we're a party for all purposes once we reach a certain degree of activity in the case. I don't think the government is saying they're a party for all purposes no, once there's a degree of they activity. Were. Yeah. We disagree. But I guess we will hear from them shortly. We'll hear from them. If there are no further questions, then we can. We can hear from the government. Thank you, Council.
Mr. Wall. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I have a question for you, Mr. Wall. I, I, I thought you might. <laughs> what is the government's position on that? Point? I actually wanted to start exactly where you and Justice Ginsburg began, because I think we've gotten off a little bit on the wrong track. If this Court wants a bright-line rule, the right rule is intervention. Now, that would solve 98 or 99 percent of key TAM suits under the False Claims Act. The government urged intervention as a prerequisite in Devlin, and this Court disagreed. So the government left open the possibility in its brief that in a very small number of key TAM suits on the order of 1 percent or less, it might participate absent intervention in a way that would justify treatment as a party under Devlin. But whether or not the Court agrees with us on that, a question not presented here where the government hasn't participated in any way, the right rule is intervention, and it's just a question of whether this Court wants to make it cover 98 percent of suits or 100 percent of those. You, you take the position that without intervention, though, nonetheless, the government could appeal at the, at the, at the tail end. No, we do not you believe that the government could have appealed the judgment here as of right, and that is why we think the purposes of the 60-day period were not implicated. Because the government couldn't appeal, it was not a potential appellant that required the authorization of the Solicitor General, and it didn't need the 60 days. And that's an important point, I think, about why it couldn't just be solved by the advisory Doesn't committee. Doesn't it need the 60 days to figure out whether it would want to intervene in order to be able to appeal? Justice Scalia, I think that would be equally true in a number of contexts. For instance, class action settlements where the government's entitled to notice, presumably so that it could intervene, government contractor suits. There are any number of federal cases where the government might find a decision shocking and want to come in, but until it does — But they are not not statutes which give the government an extended period of time in order to allow the consultation. This is a statute that does that. And, and why would they why would they not envision the need for that consultation in the situation where the government has had no participation but comes up with a with a, a, a decision contrary to what it think the, thinks the good law is and it has to decide whether it wants to intervene in order to appeal why shouldn't you give them the 60 days well justice Scalia, with all respect the false claims act itself doesn't say anything about intervention doesn't say anything about 60 days it just says the government has a right to come in and take over the action and run it and allow the relator to continue as a party and that's why it uses the word intervene because congress understood that in its accepted legal meaning as a process by which a non-party becomes a party. And the idea was to give the executive branch a choice. In each key TAM suit, the executive is able to determine whether to assume the greater benefits and burdens of party status. Petitioner is caught in the awkward position of saying that he thinks that the government is a party at the time the case is filed, not then a party for purposes of discovery, but even though it hasn't done anything, is somehow a party again when the notice of appeal is filed. And the government's position is just that where it does not come into the case and doesn't intervene, it's not a party for any of those purposes. What, what, why do you care? I mean, you're just giving these uh, people who might well be confused by this provision another 30 days. I think there are two distinct harms, Mr. Chief Justice. The first is to the government, and the second is to Congress and the system it's set up in the statute. The harm to the government is that if it can be made a party under FRAP 4, despite the fact that it has actively attempted to decline party status, it could also be made a party under the other rules. Okay. Well, I, again, we would limit any decision to Federal Rule of Appeal 4 because of the dramatically adverse consequences uh, for the unwary. They lose their right to pursue their case. I don't think the government has any objection in theory to a period of 60 days for only FRAP 4. I think the difficulty is that any number of rules speak in terms of parties. 
And petitioners advance no persuasive distinction between FRAP 4 and other rules. Well, I just did, that, that under FRAP 4, you're out the door without any hearing on the merits. It's a technicality. The spirit of the rules is that, I mean, that we don't throw people out because of mere technicalities. Now, failure to file a timely notice of appeal is not a technicality in terms of the consequences. That's right. I, three brief points, I think. First, if this Court announces a 30-day rule, that's clear going forward. Relators and their counsel will treat declined key TAM suits like civil actions generally to which the United States is a party. Second, if the rules are better read for a 30-day period because the United States was not a party here entitled to appeal the judgment, then Petitioner was not entitled to assume that he would get 60 days. What about the lawyers and the parties in the four, the four circuits that have adopted the 60-day rule? And they had a Court of Appeals opinion in front of them that said you had 60 days. They're just out of luck now. Well, I think they also were on notice that there's a long-standing circuit split on this question, which this Court has never answered. Given the fact that what you're talking about is a ministerial task, filing a one-page notice, there are actually Federal Court's manuals that instruct in this circumstance relators' counsel to file within the 30 days. I'm sure that the Appellate Rules Advisory Committee, when they hear of this decision, if they haven't already, will put something in the rules about whether it's 30 days or 60 days. So I'm not terribly concerned about clarity going forward. Uh, it's going to be made clear by the Advisory Committee and the submission of new rules, and I see no reason that they wouldn't make it clear. I don't know whether they'll think 30 or 60 is the best idea. Right. So it's just a question of, in this case, and as Justice Stevens pointed out, what the effect is going to be on other cases. And it seems to me that in that situation, 60 days makes the most sense, because otherwise you're disrupting the, the, the system solely based on a trap for the unwary. Well, and that goes to a question that Justice Breyer asked earlier. The statute 2107 was enacted after what is now FRAP 4. The rule and the statute shortened the period to appeal from three months to 30 days. And then the judicial conference in the, in the what is now FRAP 4 drew the exception of 60 days for cases in which the United States is a party because of an express need for more time for the Solicitor General to make a decision. The judicial conference raised some question about its power to do that. Two years later, Congress enacted the statute putting in the 30-day and the 60-day rules. I think then that's a baseline. And I, I'm not sure that the the advisory committee could come back and effectively amend the, amend the statute by changing the rule. What Congress had in mind when it passed 2107 was, if, the, if the, the United States is a potential appellant and requires more time to conduct its internal decision-making processes, it gets 60 days. Otherwise, that 30-day baseline governs. And I respectfully disagree, Mr. Chief Justice, that Congress was not concerned about moving appeals forward expeditiously. It shortened the period from three months to 30 days precisely because it wanted judgments to become final. But it is, it is a potential appellant. I mean, if you say Congress is concerned about situations in which the government is a potential appellant, it is a potential appellant in these cases until the 30 days have elapsed, at least. It, it, it can intervene, and why shouldn't it have the 60 days to decide whether to appeal or not? I, I guess I, I'm not — the same answer I gave earlier, Justice Scalia, that's equally true in virtually any federal case that might affect the United States' interests where it could intervene. But this, this goes to your argument about congressional intent, that they were concerned about preserving to the government time as a potential appellant to think the matter over. I, it seems to me that argument is, is a wash. But I think it goes back to what Justice Ginsburg asked much earlier, which is, at the time the judgment is entered, 
who is a party entitled to take the appeal. If the United States has done nothing, it's not a potential appellant. When the 30-day period runs, the case is over, and the United States, if it wants to — The United States intervene within those 30 days? It can And then appeal? Yes. I think it's a potential appellant. Well, yes, and it is is equally true that it is a potential appellant then in any case that might affect its interests. But we do not commonly consider the United States a party to every class action settlement or every government contractor suit simply based on the possibility that it may want to intervene. When it does so very rarely, we're talking about — I mean, that is the exceptionally rare case under the False Claims Act, and the government is saying we can make that decision within the 30 days because we're not a party to the judgment at the time it's entered. And, again, I think what Petitioner strains to do when he says at page 25 of his reply brief that when you decline as the government, you avoid the burdens of party status, what Petitioner can't explain is why that's any different for the burden of appealing an adverse judgment and the burdens of discovery. All of those rules speak in terms of party status. If Petitioner is able to foist on the government a status that it actively attempted to decline, as was its right afforded it by Congress, then it seems to me Petitioner can equally try to foist on the government, though it doesn't hear, in future cases, party status. And this Court will have to decide, case by case, is the United States a party for purposes of each rule of civil and appellate procedure? And I think that approach threatens much more uncertainty than the approach the government's outlining, where intervention is a simple, workable, administrable test to determine whether the United States is a party to a key TAM suit. There are no more questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wall. Mr. Shore, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you. Um, I think it begs the question to say that, by its declination, the government is declining party status. It's declining to conduct the action. That's a much more limited um, category than the category of party status. Um, government is a party because it is named, served, and bound, and a real party in interest. And um, I, I didn't hear any um, uh, arguments um, addressing why the interve- intervention provision uh, is not determinative of, of uh, party status in response. Why isn't it also party under all these other rules? Um, we, 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 our position is that it, that it is a party. Under all the rules, discovery, et cetera. Well, um, again, we think it's a party, although for other reasons in the statute that it's not subject to um, uh, full party discovery um, because of the declination provision, which I discussed in, in opening. Um, I, I'd also um, take issue with uh, assertion of Respondents' Council that it's, um, that it's their rule that uh, will uh, be the bright line test. Uh, clearly, it's Petitioner's rule. Petitioner says um, that the government is a party uh, in all key TAM actions for purposes of Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 4A1B. Um, that forecloses all of the jurisdictional inquiries. It forecloses the, um, the uh, pending case issue. It forecloses the, um, uh, the complicated question of when, if the government gets a surprisingly bad um, judge, if, if a, a, a district court issues a, a surprisingly adverse judgment when the government doesn't intervene, the government, the government wants to intervene for purposes of appeal. Um, certainly, first of all, um, the government ha- that, that that question of whether to intervene is essentially the question of whether to appeal, and so it should have 60 days given the rationale for the rule. What, what, it, what do you say to the government's argument that they, it, it, it may close these doors that, that you're saying, but it opens a lot of others under other rules? Uh, the government says uh, you're just asking for trouble under the under under the and, and, and a, a, an undifferentiated number of other rules. 
if we go your way. What's your response? To that? I, I don't think it does. I think, I think the an active participation standard would create far more trouble, far more complexity. Um, it'd be almost impossible for um, relators and uh, defense to, uh, to to know in advance what's what's required. That's, that, that, that's true, but that's not the point that uh, Justice Souter was making. This is a self-denying position on the part of the government. You'd expect the government to come in and say, yeah, give us 60 days to think this over. They're saying, no, we, we'll only take 30, because they're worried that if we come out your way on that issue, there, there, there are other issues on which they're also going to be considered a party, and it's not worth the risk. Well, I, I think their, their concern is that uh, is discovery primarily, and we've certainly put plenty of arguments in our brief as to why that concern is is uh, is less. Um, and there's certainly plenty of authority for, for for thinking that the government won't be subject to discovery. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.